0: Hi, I'm Fred from Fred's Front Porch Podcast and from Studio Stargazer and, uh, yeah, from Stargazer Virtual Community Theater. I'm here with a special message just for you. We don't read and write poetry because it's cute. We read and write poetry because we are members of the human race, and the human race is filled with passion. And medicine, law, business, engineering, these are noble pursuits and necessary to sustain life. But, poetry, beauty, romance, love, these are what we stay alive for, the Dead Poets Society. I know we can't go out anymore, and that makes it difficult to enjoy many of the arts. Laura is helping to bring the arts to you for free. Her podcast is filled not only with a unique perspective and a strong voice for change and understanding, but her presentation and storytelling are compelling. She's creating art, and she's working with more artists to help them create theirs. It's one of her ways of supporting the arts. I know there are some people thinking, I have needed a plumber, a teacher, a doctor, an auto mechanic, and a cook. I pay for those folks. I don't need an artist. They do nothing to make my world function. The world would go on just fine if the arts simply shut down. I couldn't disagree with you more. Yes, we need all those people to make the world function. They are important, but what makes you and me different from cattle in the field is that we can experience catharsis. We can feel. We can love. We can understand our world more deeply than a cow can comprehend his. And artists help us to give our lives meaning. Art is what makes us human. It provides us a framework in which to view the world. And we can change our frames whenever we wish. At the moment, I'm listening to Tomorrow's Girls by Donald Fagan. That creates a particular feeling in me. I'm rocking gently in my chair, and I'm thinking about why they're landing on the Jersey beaches. And I would worry about copyright infringement, but I sing so badly that no one would recognize it. Anyway, it's a nice feeling. By the time I finish writing this, another framework will present itself to me, to allow me to think and feel something else. Look, you probably spend quite a bit of money on either cable or Netflix or Amazon Prime or Hulu or whatever else you may use. You're supporting artists who have large platforms and, frankly, don't really need your money. They've already made it. Patrick Stewart will pay rent next month whether I subscribe to CBS All Access or not. I'm asking you to support the smaller artists who want to share their visions with you. Laura's Patreon is in the show notes. You love her work. Please, help her make a living giving you the art you love. Now I opened with Dead Poets Society, so let me close with it as well. To quote from Whitman, Oh me! that the powerful play goes on, and you may contribute a verse. What will your verse be?
1: Chapter two. I was just calling to say, I love you, Sam. I always loved you. In the slight pause, a bit confused, I followed. I, goodbye, the voice trailed off in a strained whisper. And I rose, immediately shaken as a feeling of urgency took over, no longer able to sit or linger. The bar stool clunked to the ground behind me, but in a muffled and insulated way, as the setting and ambience suddenly seemed shrouded, contorting around me to form a tunnel to the door and my truck beyond. I had to get home. I think I didn't pay my tab looking back. I'm not sure if I uttered a word to the bartender as I abandoned my drink and bulleted out the door. It had been maybe 15 minutes that I had been sitting there. Connelly's Irish pub was just around the corner from my home. I had been eyeing it for months, but I had never even walked in the place before that day. Perhaps idealizing the experience a bit, sloshing it around in my mind, I thought it might be a new and interesting experience. I had never yet lived that quintessential American slash British slash Anglo Saxon experience you see in all the movies and sitcoms where you just go to the bar and start a tab and play pool or talk to the bartender or whoever else is there. Meet people, flirt, start a bar fight. I don't know. I just wanted that new. i had only just turned that golden age of 21 the month before. I didn't celebrate birthdays. It was against my religion. And that's seriously the least jehovah Litically correct way I can explain it. Ever since I was a tiny, lanky, and cute five-year-old starting kindergarten, I was told that I shouldn't explain it that way. I needed to be able to describe the woeful sinfulness comprehensively from the Bible so that people know it's what I want. It's so they would get the impression that I've taken the time to really mull this all over, and my well-researched conclusion stands that birthdays are obviously the work of Satan. That devil of demons. Please don't ever ask me to biblically elucidate birthday wrongness, though. (laughs) I still don't get it. It was against my religion, and saying anything else would just come off as internalized posturing. Too many openings in the rationale, more than everything else, even. I can't say I didn't already drink plenty. That's something everyone learns how to do early enough. Especially if they're trying the insanity of reaching out more in their congregation. There's no end to more. Always having plenty to do. And always saying yes works up an insatiably stress thirst. And by the way, we're reading from the first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15, verse 58, brothers and sisters. Please follow along in your own copy of the scriptures. Then keep that spot. Because we'll be flipping over a few chapters, over to Paul's first letter to young Timothy, so that we can learn how Jehovah thinks alcohol is a fantastic form of medication. And yes, of course, I'm well aware of how douchey this all sounds. However, the truth is, I had been all of 16 when I first hit up my parents' hidden liquor collection with some friends. Kids are big on firsts. Ergo, the pub sounded like it might be interesting. It sounded worldly, and totally not in the bad way that I had been taught. At that particular moment, though, it hadn't really been about that. Oh my god, I'd only needed to think. Just for a second, I needed my space. I needed to just recompile it all for a second, before I lost it. That's how I ended up there at the bar. That's how this started. I'm not entirely sure why that was such an important thought to me as I jostled my key into the ignition and the engine fired up into an envied, thoughtless life of gas guzzling and gear spinning. And hello, attention readers. This isn't something I really want to talk about. This isn't how I wanted to begin this story. But if we're going to openly discuss these things I have to say and if you're going to understand me in fairness, in any fairness, and honesty, we most likely have to discuss this at some point and towards the outset, just the way it is. Despite the way it sounds, this is not the hot, messy climax of my plot. It's loud, but only a small part of my whole definition a vociferous antecedent to my person. You see, personally, I'm counting on you already having figured this out. I'm betting on you knowing the phone call I received. It was from my wife. And I'm just sure you've already gathered why I was on a one-track-minded mad dash back home. Surely by now you have perceived that my wife of merely eight months had simply decided to swallow an entire bottle of acetaminophen that night. And that much is undoubtedly obvious to you at this point. And I'm sure you just see her like I did when I arrived home. She was lying down on the couch for me to find her dying. In turn, I think you already may guess that she had decided to kill both herself and our unborn child in this way, in a self-centered fit of angst and pity because I was less than enthusiastic about and even a little frightened by our newly discovered pregnancy. When I found her, I was in hysterics. I dialed the numbers 911 frantically for the first time ever in my life. A lot of firsts that day. Surely you must have figured that part out by now too. I know you can already hear me blubbering on the phone with all the same sadness and confusion of an anxious animal crying to be let outside to pee, although no one is home. I was so worked up at the time, but really it's such routine anxiety. I'm not quite sure how you recover from this level of cliche. What I usually do is just time travel. You know, I'm a big nerd. Granted, but I'm actually being literal as I'll get up here. I hop that fourth wall a few times and bazinga, I've stitched together a few pieces of life that don't want to stick. If my present ever stopped making honest sense, well, I just don't want to go there yet. And I've since discovered cannabis helps a lot. By the way, if you don't think any of this is at all cliche, well, you've (laughs) made my point then especially since right at this very moment, in the present, my father is bleeding from his frontal lobe. My father, always the antagonist of my mother's life. My father, who ultimately chose to stay in contact with his family instead of burrowing deeper and deeper into the imagined safety and abusive love of a religious cult. Shame on him, for sure. Another pawn of the devil, My father, who threw himself into his work as a professor of research, took pride in it and always was smart with money, saving to at least afford a decent retirement. He was the one who was there for my brother and bought him a car and gave him a place to live and money to go to college when my mom kicked him out for being gay. My father, who gave me a place to stay while I went out and prostituted myself because it was seriously the only work I could find with how things were for me after leaving that cult. At 61, he still hadn't retired yet. But all the same, life or God, he believes in God. So God slated him to have a seizure while mixing his daily morning fiber. And he fell. He fell and sustained a serious brain injury, as the neurologist put it. Cat scans and family panic du jour Talking to my once fiery, educated, and opinionated father on the phone is now incredibly paced, simplistic, and clearly labored for him. And it's arduously painful for me to figure out how I'm supposed to feel about all this, considering all the levels of horrible our relationship has been through. Though, as of yet, completely unaccounted for by my father, the great librarian. I wonder where the girl who right-hooked her daddy in the face falls in the Dewey Decimal System. Feminist literature. The neurologist told me. Honestly, it doesn't really matter what the neurologist or any other doctor thinks, because he's just legally covering his own ass anymore. Hope is not in their vocabulary. So we need to reasonably and level-headedly plan for everything from vegetable to full bounce back. And here I am trapped 47 states away on the Oregon-Washington border and ascending new heights of anxiety as I try to reach my father for a reason I haven't even figured out yet. Tunnel vision again. Only this time I've just moved and I'm out of resources and there's no way to get home immediately a bit of white lavender one day, and blue dream the next. And I've jumped the fence, fourth dimensionally, of course. I'm back then, when the officers arrived from my 911 call. As I was 20 questioned, I couldn't squelch my sobs. Of course, it was assumed I was to blame for my psychotic love sinking into the throes of death, because obviously all my physical parameters in this relationship point to it's all my fault, always. If the pretty girl is sad, I probably did it. Short hair, hairy legs and all. I definitely fit the bill. And I wouldn't deny it. I couldn't stand myself. I'm well-versed in how little I deserve to live at this point, believe me. I couldn't hold it together. It was my fault after all. It was undeniably selfish of me to even suggest an abortion. Being scared because we were still living with my mother was no real excuse for trying to offer a rational, level-headed way out. And then, odds forbid, I take 30 minutes for myself and try to figure out how this is going to work, come up with a plan of action, or at least cope with the shock. I just couldn't I just shouldn't have been so emotional. I should have kept my mouth shut. That was my job here. The thing then was we lived in my mother's house, the place where I had been carefully and precisely molded and fired and chipped into something I didn't even recognize in the end. My marketing department couldn't really come to terms with my product. I felt like bait and switch personified, except I couldn't even put that into words. My mom certainly always had a lot to say on it. Despite following all the instructions, I think we were both a bit underwhelmed with fully constructed adult model me. I hadn't amounted to much more than a decent but exhausted Jehovah's Witness, tough, chewy, and tasteless after years in the pressure cooker. I didn't have much else to brag about. And even then, I had recently given up on my ministerial privileges in the congregation. What can I say? I was never a material girl. I was always too happy with simple relationships, romance, and love. The accomplishments were for others always. They weren't really mine. I was just goods and services. A sacrifice to God because authentic me. We can leave her out of this whole conversation. Discard her from this whole life, this whole equation, and fill the demand. God's demands, man's demands, women's demands. And that was then. Right now, the man my father was may be gone forever. His accomplishments also don't matter, even to him at the moment, but he matters to me. This can't be how his raging fire quits. The thing now is we live in this factory nation that churns out glorious patriotic nation-building product in only 30 years turnaround time, broken adult sycophants, who can no longer think and just say yes so that they can get back to their corn and media and social feed. We've got people in this world who literally will refuse to be decent to others based on whether or not they're wearing animal skins. Don't get me wrong. I consider myself a vegan lowercase, not capital V and I'll explain later. However, I also escaped a cult once and I know the difference between philosophy, diet, and dogma. If some stranger's parent is dying in a hospital 47 states away, I would hope I'm not going to make things harder for him by making a raucous, angry scene about his leather boots or whatever. Because when we all reach that 55 or 60 years of age, we all start realizing there is no green pasture of remembrance and accomplishment ahead. Meeting the demand isn't significant enough on its own. And so we're baying in our futile, hoodwinked fury as we are poked closer and closer towards the grinding cogs of debt and inheritance and that capitalism factory that is steadily apportioned for us our daily feed, regular subscriptions to whatever ideology we align with, and a steady insulin trance. As long as we say yes and can tug a plow or a carriage, we are remembered and we benefit but not a second longer. Not by this factory. Don't get me wrong, I'm not all doom and gloom and morbidity. I'm not some communist anarchist tub thumping rebel, either. I'm a rebel, maybe. But I've always been a lot better reasoned than completely writing off long-standing economic models. It's just that's the same reason I recognize there are other models out there balancing the scales of validity. And maybe we need to just pick and choose our individual actions and reactions more wisely instead of sliding a singular colored tinted glass over our eyes. The last time I did that, it was Jehovah colored. Which is basically black, like welding goggles. You could honestly only see anything at all when... The light was explosion quality bright enough. And again, the lenses were Jehovah colored, not the light. Those flares were actually just the best and worst parts of life blazing as they threatened to pass me by under my apathetic Jehovah insistent haze. Wait, no, wait. Actually, the last time was probably the time I was wearing the vagina pink tinted spectacles of feminism. I got caught up. We all do, but I chuck those too. And again, I'll explain later. No, I fully believe that whether still inside or having escaped the factory, the only salvation from this world as a whole rests within our connections. Real connections and love we forge with others keep us moving forward. They keep us living. Just like no matter how pressingly my birthday is supposed to be against my religion, And no matter the moral claim on it, for good or evil, I still grow a year older every time it passes. Either I celebrate it, or I ignore it. Life can either keep passing by, or you can live in the realities we all take turns taking for granted from time to time, and find other like-minded people to celebrate your reality with. August, my wife was at the hospital having her stomach pumped. I had never been as open and authentic with anyone else but her. I had told August how I felt about myself, how I truly sincerely saw myself, and my deepest denied needs and wants. She was the first person I had ever been able to be that honest with. Of course, not then and there in the crisis or at the hospital, but a few years before while we were still dating, and I knew I was sure about her. Granted, I was still more concerned about Jehovah and less about how those particulars of my life would realistically play out over the next ten years. And unfortunately, neither of us were very interested in actually celebrating my weirdness. I was 19, so I didn't have it together by any means. It was only a start, like introducing yourself to Alcoholics Anonymous, except without the negative connotations, but with other contrived negative connotations. Despite Florida's Baker Act, the officers not only drove me to the hospital to see August okay, but at the doctor's permission also allowed me to stay with her for the night. She had been asking for me. Nurses had been telling her to leave me for doing this to her, Later, she told me that. Instead, she had kept asking for me. I stayed there with her, still rattled and confused. My mom came later with a few of my friends from the congregation and pried me away, telling me I needed to get some sleep. I needed rest so I could be there and prepared when she was ready to be released. I flopped down in bed and cried the rest of the night until I simply passed out. I just couldn't understand. Apparently when you suggest an abortion to your best friend who has no income and a loser baby daddy, the answer is to attempt to kill both yourself and the baby. It makes sense. You shouldn't waste Jehovah's time on a higher education. If you need to marry, you should. Jehovah's okay with that. Paul said so. But don't even whisper about an abortion as one of Jehovah's witnesses. Honestly, if there's a reasonable answer to any of this mumbo-jumbo, I don't know it. I only know that up until that night, I thought August and I were real. I'd wanted our future, all of it, with children included. Until that night, i had always thought at least we'd last forever. We both loved Jehovah, and i had always been honest with her. But forever was how suddenly and permanently we were changed in each other's eyes as we displayed how meaningless Jehovah's lofty standards actually were to both of us. Right now, of course, my father is in some lousy hospital without much family close by. His incoherent present may end up being his forever. And I can't stop thinking about that. I'm an overwhelmed mess and not much else is getting through at the moment. Yes, that's right. He has three children. I bitched over the phone to the nurse at St. Mary's Medical Center. One son and two daughters. And yes, I know his partner is there. But none of his children are local and we need to be kept updated on his condition. It shouldn't be a problem to keep in touch with at least one of us. The nurse tripped over her words. He, He told us he had two sons and a daughter who doesn't talk to him. If I have to fly down there to your hospital just to make sure you're doing your jobs, there will be problems. Especially if I discover he's not being taken care of properly. What's your name again?